I'm really well, Matt. What about yourself? Not too bad. I'm a little bit excited, a little bit giddy about the state of the market. We've been talking about this for four years, and it seems to be starting to get to where we think it could get to, but I still think it's got a long way to run. What about you? Yeah, I think that's correct. I think in terms of time, the uranium market is finally maturing. Uh, it's important for folks out there to understand that the uranium sector, although it is a commodity, it operates on a much longer bandwidth or cycle length to other commodities. So many people talk in terms of a seven-year um, commodity cycle from top to bottom, back to top in copper or other commodities. Uranium is a bit different because the customers for uranium, which is entirely the civil nuclear power sector worldwide, those customers, they operate very long life assets and their contracting cycle is typically seven to 10, sometimes even longer years, seven to 10 years and even longer. And what that means is when it's a bear market, it's pretty savage and it's pretty long. And we had a 10-year bear market since 2011. But equally, we're now heading into a bull market. And I think we're two, maybe three years into that bull market. And so from a timing perspective, I don't think this is going to be a spike in the way that it was in 2007. I think it's a much more sustained bull market. And the better reference point for that would be the 1970s, when the oil crisis led to a huge amount of new construction of nuclear power reactors globally, France being a great example. And as a result of that, we saw sustained uranium prices in real terms, in today's dollar terms, about double what the current spot price is over a period of several years. So that's what we've got to look forward to. What the trajectory of prices are from here, well, that's, that's really tough to call and difficult to say, and there's lots of opinions about it. Uh, but I'd agree with you, Matt. I think uh, there's more growth in the uranium price from here. And the real question becomes, to what extent does it overshoot? And then where does it settle into the longer term as, as this bull market matures over the next seven or eight years? Well, that's why I do want to come back to that point perhaps later in this conversation, because it's um, lots of conversation around, well, this is just a spike. Look at lithium, look at cobalt, look at nickel. Look at all of these commodities, which we see is soaring up three times, four times, and then come back down uh, as quickly as, as they went away. I, I, we need to ask that question, I think, more fully. We'll do that later. For now, let's just took, take a look, if you don't mind, at where we were when we first started talking about four years ago, what the market looked like then for companies and what it looked like then for long-suffering shareholders. <laughs> So let's, let's remind ourselves of what that was like and perhaps you know how we ended up where we are today. So there's lots of geopolitical uh, commentary and, and regular political uh, uh, commentary and contribution to, to uranium of, of recent times, but it wasn't like that four years ago. No, absolutely not. And, you know, suffering's an appropriate word. It was a deep, desperate bear market that lasted for 10 years. Now, the impact of that suffering, apart from making a... Uranium CEO's day job significantly more challenging. The impact is there was very little capital available. So let's let's cast our mind back to when we started recording the energy show back four years ago. The one of the big topics of conversation was when would the uranium spot price break through thirty dollars a pound? You know, now it's at a hundred. That was a deep bear market, 
uh, Bannerman Energy's share price was trading at less than a tenth of what it is now. Uh, now, the consequence of that, of course, is that companies, including ours, had to be enormously careful about raising capital and how they spent that capital. For many companies in the sector, all they could really do was keep the lights on. Uh, we were very fortunate because we'd raised a lot of money during the spike in 2006 and 2007 and deployed those funds into, for example, more than 300 kilometres of drilling. You couldn't have done that during the bear market. We were just fortunate that we did all of our resource drilling and all of our enormously expensive technical development work into a very large project that Bannerman has at a tango in Namibia. We did that with money that was raised really well in a highly supportive capital environment. If it wasn't for that, there's no way that we would be in a position now to have a shovel-ready project because the capital just wasn't available for 10 years. And another thing that was a feature of the market back then was it was a real oversupply. Um, inventories were a constant topic of conversation because there was too much uranium, both too much uranium being produced, but too much uranium sloshing around the system in the form of mobile inventory. The view of the utilities was four years ago, it hadn't quite started to change. Uh, they couldn't quite see over the horizon in the same way that we were. And their view was that there was plenty of uranium and they weren't too sure if that would ever change or what would change it. And of course, now it's a dramatically different situation where the view is, where's the uranium even going to come from to fill some of the projected deficits? In addition to how high is demand growth going to start peaking at now that we've got almost global, almost, but very widespread support from many, many different industrialized countries in the world for increasing, even tripling, the contribution of nuclear power uh, to the world's energy market at the moment. So it's a dramatically different situation. And four years, I'm not going to say it wasn't a long time because it certainly felt like a long time uh, during that bear market, um, but it's the depth of the bear market that dictates how buoyant the bull market's going to be. And this bear market saw uranium prices below the average cost of production, not profitable, but cost of production in this sector for many years. And that's what had such a decimating effect on the supply eventually. And now the market and the uranium sector is, I suppose, dealing with the consequences of that a dis supply destruction and that failure of market mechanisms to anticipate the coming bull cycle and therefore invest into the supply that is going to be required over the next 10 years. Well, well let's, let's look at some of it. Some, again, some of the topics that we've discussed regularly practically every week for the last four years. And we're doing a kind of summary here because this 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 show and it's part of a kind of wider um, show for Uranium Uncovered is to help people new to it, right? So they, they, if they try and understand some of the moving parts, perhaps they, if they want to dig deeper, then go back and look at oral shows or do some research themselves. But so there was a significant shift with, in terms of attitude by politicians off the back of some of the problems caused by COVID, supply chain issues, and a kind of soaring energy price environment, right? Um, and you know, then followed up very quickly by the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation, where again the price is going to rocket. When was that? It'll be seven hundred days now, apparently. 
politicians felt they had permission to actually talk about nuclear for the first time. It was something that they tippy-toed around and, and tried to ignore and tried not to get involved with because they, you know, pressure from people like you know, Greenpeace and other kind of NGOs who felt that it was a no-no, right? So again, when you when you sort of look back at some of that that movement, political movement, um, posturing, and quite frankly, ownership by some U.S. senators now, they're very proud to be associated with with, with, with nuclear. What what did that look like and feel like at the time for for you when the first came along? As a, as a CEO of a, of a uranium company, well, it's a key driver in this sector: political support and, of course, social support for nuclear power. It's a key driver of demand. And even two years ago, nuclear power represented political risk in almost every jurisdiction. It was something to not put your neck out under any circumstances, and it was a driver of demand for two reasons. One, of course, is that future nuclear power plants, both conventional and small modular reactors, will need political support and need the social license and therefore the social support. But it was even more critical because the lack of political support and in many instances around the world, um, destructive political decisions to ban nuclear power led to a large number of nuclear reactors being switched off, as in early before the end of their operating life, and uh, a large number of nuclear reactors that were scheduled or legislated to be switched off. Now, that was only two years ago. Where we've now moved to, and your point about senators being proud of their support for nuclear power, in many markets, in many countries, we've now switched 180 degrees. There's now political opportunity to talk about nuclear power. There's political opportunity to get the, to seize the agenda on decarbonisation and um, energy security and uh, consistent pricing of energy and 24-7 baseload energy, all of those things that nuclear power represents. And I believe over the next couple of years, we'll see that opportunity start to manifest itself, that in many countries, it becomes really a race between political sectors as to who has the most vision when it comes to nuclear power. In the US and the UK, for example, it's bipartisan or cross-party support. You will see other um, countries, I believe, where uh, political parties, both those in power and those in opposition, will seize the opportunity of promoting nuclear power. Now, that's at a political level. Their policymakers and their technocrats have known this for a lot longer. It's just that the first signs of permission, as you say, to talk positively about nuclear power in the political sphere came with COP26. Two years later, we've just had COP28, which is referred to as the nuclear cop. It's, uh, one of the headlines that summarizes it all for me was nuclear stole the show. And that's what happened. It was the single most significant outcome from COP28 was the pledge from 25 different countries, most of the important economies in the world, that they would uh, pledge to triple nuclear power by 2050. So that's a really different situation. What it means for me as a CEO is it means that I don't need to be talking to investors and policymakers and people in the industry, encouraging them to look over the horizon anymore, because that's what we were doing four years ago, right? We were trying to set out the logic and the reasoning as to why our forecasting suggested that you know, frankly, the circumstance that we're in today 
was going to be there. Now we don't need to do that. Investors can see with their own eyes. They can see from their own news feed what the situation is. And now it's about making the decisions about how best to position themselves as investors for that. Okay, so th that change of narrative has driven the demand side of the story. So we're talking of... Um, and we're, like I say, and we're kind of doing a simple version of the of the show today. So, for all these weekly listeners to this, where we kind of get in, into a bit more detail here, but this is really to kind of give an overview and get get people into get people intrigued and interested in this. So, that political narrative, change of narrative, meant that decisions were made around you know extension to existing reactor lives. Some some reactors which were destined to be closed down were given an, ex, ex, have been given extensions. New reactors are talked about as some new technologies such as small modular reactors are being talked about all of which need to be fed with uranium right and enriching uranium um to be able to obviously give us the 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 cheap baseload that energy which you know all these politicians are looking for so again when you when you when you look at that kind of that kind of landscape of demand um do you think that is sustaining? Do you think it's cheap political rhetoric, or can you see can you see this demand continuing to grow? And you've got a better you've got a, you you also fully qualified to talk about this given your role at the WNA. Yeah, look, I've as you mentioned, Matt, I've spent a lot of time over the last six years involved in those very questions through World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Report, which is probably still the most detailed and authoritative forecasting document in the world when it comes to uh, nuclear fuel demand and uranium demand out to 2040. The way that I think a new investor or someone looking at the sector for the first time can approach this is there's a level of baked-in demand for uranium. And that baked-in demand comes from existing nuclear power stations, including the ones that were destined to be switched off that have now been saved and those that are having their lifetime extended to 60 or 80 years and the nuclear power stations that are committed to be built, whether that's already in construction or there's already a government commitment or financing commitment to build it. But that's baked in. That's not going anywhere. In the current energy crisis and the unfolding challenges that we face with decarbonizing electricity and other forms of industry, you can feel very confident as an investor that that demand is going to be there. So that's, if you like, the cake. We'll talk about the icing in the moment. The thing about the cake is we don't have enough flour to make that cake. And that's the supply of uranium, even based only on the baked in demand that comes from those assured uh, demand centers for uranium. We've got looming supply deficits. And that gives you a great level of confidence in your thesis. Now you can then layer into that the icing on the cake and the icing on the cake is additional demand that we're now seeing into the market. It might not be baked in, it might not be certain, but it's open for forecasters, including myself and my colleagues at WNA and at Bannerman Energy, to take a view on that potential demand and what proportion of that potential demand is likely to stick. And from our perspective, it's very, very attractive for the reasons that you've talked about. There's a new push for new conventional nuclear power stations in many different markets, and there's a huge new push for small modular reactors uh, it's over the next one to two to three decades. 
that's not only coming from governments and industry, it's also coming from multilateral agencies like the IEA, for example. It's coming from various forecasters who are prepared to look at nuclear power on its merits. And even if a proportion of that icing comes to fruition, that's adding a lot of pressure on uranium supply over the next five to 10 years in particular. And that's one of the factors that gives a lot of uh, commentators confidence to be able to come out and start projecting and forecasting uranium prices significantly above uh, even the spot price today that we're seeing in circa $104 a pound. Right. And, and so let's move on to, we're, we're going to move on to that, that supply component, right? So we've, we've talked about where we've come from. Where we are to today in terms of that support, what that support converts into in terms of demand. Now the supply side, we need that flour for that cake. About 50 companies or so at the beginning of this process. We're seeing a lot of influx of lots of new companies. So it's, it's, it's definitely flavor of the month. You know it when people jump on the bandwagon. But here's the thing. You've got a lot of exploration who are very, very far away from being able to decide whether they get into production, let alone get into production. You, you said that's a long gestation period. And very few develop advanced development stories as well. And if you add up all of those pounds, there's a massive gap. There's a massive gap. So we need a lot more investment into the space, um, not just financial products, ETFs and trusts, et cetera, but also into the companies who are doing the work to get to the point where they can find the uranium work out the economics are there for for a business and then get it in production and into and that product into market via you know enrichment services etc so again if I look at the supply side I'm a little bit nervous I don't know how you feel you're you're one of a handful of companies Bannerman energy is one of a handful of companies with an advanced development story ready to make a decision about starting to build a mine but if I look at the rest of the landscape, Shall I feel a little bit more optimistic? It depends on your time frame, Matt. Like on a 10-year time frame, if you're talking about supply more than 10 years out from now, well, that's what the capital market's going to solve for. With the availability of capital that I would anticipate during this uh, evolving bull market in uranium, there will be discoveries. There'll be development of some of the fantastic discoveries that have been made already. Uh, now, that will probably need to match off against very optimistic demand projections because I think it's in that time frame that we'll start to see nuclear demand from SMRs and conventional reactors really increase. But at least there's a potential out there with funded discoveries to start catching up to that demand. So on that time frame, I don't think there's any uh, reason to be concerned. Now, of course, we're never going to see uranium go back to those dark old day prices over the next um, foreseeable future. You'll need a sustained uranium price to actually incentivize that production, but it will be there. The real concern though, and the question is under what market circumstances will there be sufficient supply come in to the sector over the next five to 10 years? And for, for people who are grappling with this sector for the first time, um, again, you can think about it in terms, there's a baseline amount of supply that comes from existing suppliers. They've been highly concentrated. Effectively, there's three commercial suppliers plus Russia 
in the sector who account for the vast majority of the uranium produced. It's also very geographically concentrated. Uh, 10 countries alone produce upwards of 90% of the uranium produced in the entire world. So it's highly concentrated. There's a lot of talk about restarts and there's talk about some expansions. So there are some um, companies going through restarts. So our neighbor in Namibia, Paladin Energy, uh, everything I'm hearing about their restart is positive and they've put out a good announcement just today. Uh, there's Boss Energy in Australia who's, who are, are putting out some very positive news for about their restart. Um, you, Cameco uh, and Kazatomprom are planning on expanding their production, although you know both of those companies have had challenges with that. But I think for a new investor into this sector, what you also need to understand is on the one hand, you've got restarts and you've got potential expansions, but that's against a depleting asset base. So it's almost like the sector's giving with one hand with, ex- with restarts and expansions, but over that time frame, the next five to 10 years, they're very much taking with the other as, we- as some of these long life assets start to come to an end, as some of the Kazakh operations start to taper off. And so that baseline, even with the expansions and the restarts, over that time frame, that baseline is at best going to be static. So the question comes in this growing demand profile and in this existing deficit, who's going to be there to come in and increase production? And you've made the point, Matt, in the investable universe, there is less than a handful of advanced developers of any scale that are ready to come into production in the next five years. And, you know, I'm delighted to be running a company that's one of those and certainly a leader in that uh, in that respect. Uh, but this is where the 10-year bear market really starts to play out. The hangover from the difficulties of that bear market is going to last that next 10 years. And it's probably after that that the new production will start coming in. Okay, so that was one of the literally handful of companies ready to take advantage of this situation. I'm interested in how you've done it. Now, you've had a bit of time in a bear market to do a lot of thinking, try a lot of stuff, you know, um, to position, get yourself into this position. You've had time. If I look at, you know, some of the companies posturing and moving forward now um, and, and, you know, start, starting a journey, um, they don't may not may not actually have the time, but what they what they do have is a very euphoric sector and space. Now, as an investor, that's great news to kind of be around, very positive environment to be around. But at the end of the day, I'm also interested in companies where I don't have to try and work out, you know, if I'm being gamed about, you know, well, let's let's kind of get, see a rapid rise in share price, and hopefully I'll check out at the, at the right spot there because I'm not so sure of their ability to actually get it into production. With you, what what process did you go through? What did you learn? What did you get right? What did you get wrong? Can that process be condensed? You know, will others follow? You know, suit very very quickly. And what's the future look like for your company? So, as you say, Matt, we are in an enviable position, and and what that means in actual fact is we've got a shovel ready, construction ready project. So all of the environmental approvals are in place to both construct and operate our Atango mine. We have our mining license. We have a DFS. We've completed front-end engineering and design. We're ready now to move into detailed design. 
We've commenced uh, construction of an access road and a temporary construction water pipeline so that when the time comes to construct, we're not starting from the beginning. We've already got a strong walking start on construction. And that's not unique, but it's very unusual. It's also at a very large scale. So three and a half million pounds per annum. That's enough uranium to feed seven to eight conventional nuclear power plants. So seven to 8,000 megawatts of nuclear power. That's a lot, right? That's a big mine. And that's a multi-decade mine because we have a resource of in excess of 200 million pounds that's open at depth. So very big project. We're in Namibia, which is a 45-year history of producing and successfully exporting uranium. So we've got all of those ticks, which is great. But your question, we didn't just sort of appear there one day. We, We timed that successfully, I believe, coming bringing all of that together with the right market conditions. Uh, what did we do wrong? Well, the, the biggest and most difficult decisions along the way was how to allocate capital during a bear market. We constantly asked ourselves questions like, should we just be going on to care and maintenance? Should we be shutting up shop, putting in a couple of consultants to run the company, not raise any more money until the uranium price picked up. I think in hindsight, we can probably go back and say, no, we, we made the right call to uh, keep a, stel- a skeleton staff, but keep the project slowly moving forward. Yes, we did obviously need to dilute shareholders to stay alive and keep things moving forward. But uh, as I said, in, in four years, we've generated more than a tenfold return. So I think we probably threaded the needle okay there. Some of the things that we did get right Um, that I'm very pleased about is I think we find ourselves in this position being able to really, to be in a position to best manage this buoyant market conditions for our ultimate shareholder returns. I think it was a combination of two things. It was our strategic planning being able to ensure that we had the widest possible range of options today. And then the second aspect was investing heavily in a very nuanced understanding of the uranium sector, not just paying for consultants and reading what they did and what they say, but having really what what I think is a defendable position as one of the leading understanding of the uranium demand and uh, nuclear power sector amongst any of the genius in the world. Those two factors have significantly contributed to us now being in the position that we're in. And, and then the final aspect of that and what makes the Bannerman story so appealing is we find ourselves today at $104 a pound as a spot price, term contract prices catching up, and we're fully open. We haven't written any contracts yet. We didn't jump the moment that contract prices started to get attractive. We held back. We haven't put any strategics on our register, so we're totally unaligned in terms of market participants, and we're totally un. Um, unhedged in terms of our full production capability. Behind that, we've still got an expansion. So three and a half million pounds is likely to double uh, in the coming years. And that gives us the potential to expand our production, most likely double our production into that five to 10 year critical window that I was talking about. Right. Okay. In, and, and I'm very conscious that you've got to be somewhere in, in, a, few, in a few moments. So um, if, I, if I'm looking at the market more broadly um, from a financial perspective equities is clearly what interests me you know who the winners and losers are going to be but also 
but how these how these businesses get funded. Like you're you're the you're sort of close to FID here, and um, and so I so I keep coming back to Bannerman as a sort of a case study, but I, I think it just given it's one of a handful, I, I think it's it's useful to. If I'm looking at the 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 financing, you've got very niche um, investors into the space, um, which have been great for the, for some of the equities. These these niche guys have kind of maybe kept a few companies going in the belief, with their belief of, of, of the thesis, right? Um, but then you've got to kind of step up into the, the next bunch of financiers, which are the guys who are going to finance you building this thing out from the debt perspective, structured uh, perspective, um, and, and possibly equities perspective. Big chunks of change on the CapEx and, and sustaining OPEX. Um, it's a very small space, very niche space. And if all of these companies that talk about getting into production need to kind of get into production, maybe that's a lot of exposure for the existing uh, finance finance groups. I, I, I don't know. Good news is we're seeing a lot of generalists kind of coming stepping into the fray, but starting from a very low base in terms of the understanding of the space and how it works and if and how they get involved with it. And I think John Chien Bagler from uh, Spot, Spot Physical Reunion Trust said he's been to 250 companies, uh, finance groups, including brokers, um, who are now interested in this uranium space and asking some very, very simple um, questions of, of him. I think he said I, he felt like a school teacher in some of these these meetings. That slew of money coming in is obviously going to be good news um, for the sector. So again, how, how do, what are those conversations going to look like for, for groups like yourself who are talking to this, you know, the various finance options that are potentially on the table? Well, I think the key word is options. And we've worked very hard at anticipating what the financing world would look like when we find ourselves in this moment. So that's eight years of planning. Uh, and we've ensured that we've kept all of those options open. So does that mean a conventional project financing with a syndicate of banks led by perhaps an export credit agency? Well, maybe, and we want that option open. But as you say, uh, there are constraints on that outcome because there haven't been many uranium projects financed in the last 10, 15 years. So there isn't a whole lot of experience there. There isn't a particularly deep flow of capital. And that will end up being a constraint to this sector um, if it isn't resolved. So then you say, well, what are the other options that you'd really want to have in your bag? And the biggest one is industry money. And the best way of maintaining that option is to ensure that we're totally unaligned, that we haven't forward sold any of our product or contracted any of our product, and we haven't um, issued shares to any particular players in the industry. So we can talk to everybody. Um, we've got the particular advantage, which is very fortunate that we're in Namibia, which is a country that's able to face all of the key players in the world. It has very good relationships with China, with the US, with Europe and the UK, um, South Korea. It, it's, uh, it's welcomed by all of the key industry players, Japan even as they re-emerge as a big player in this sector. So we've got those options open and then you combine that with a very buoyant um, stock market that ensures that our assets are being valued at least for the meantime appropriately and uh, because of the leverage of we've got going into higher uranium prices, I think we've got the potential to revalue again. That's what gives us the options. It, those options aren't available to everybody. Uh, 
we've got more options because we're a very large project with a very large resource base and a long mine life and a high level of production and the capacity to expand that again. That's attractive to industry players when there's concerns about where they will secure the supply for their 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year projects that they're building at the moment. Um, but really one of the key questions for how supply is able to meet the market is where's the money going to come from for all of the other players, both those who are shovel ready like we are at the moment and all of these uh, discoveries that are being worked up. That could be yet another supply constraint that adds further pressure to this sector. All big questions, all all things. I'm sure, no doubt we will discuss in our, in our weekly get-togethers going forward as things heat up, if you've got time, of course. Um, so, Brandon, I like, appreciate it. I know you've got, a, you've got a dash now, so we'll see you next week, okay? Thanks for having me on, Matt.